America was built by dreamers and founded on risk-taking. The path was filled with seemingly insurmountable obstacles, but against all odds, generations of Americans worked hard, persevered, and didn't take no for an answer. Well, neither did today's guests. Back in March at the 94th Annual Academy Awards, Troy Kotzer became the first deaf man to take home an Oscar for acting when he won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Frank Rossi in the film CODA, which stands for Child of Deaf Adults. In the film, he plays a father whose wife and son are also deaf, but his daughter is not. She's a CODA. He struggles with her desire to leave home in pursuit of her dream to become a singer. There will never be a good time. I I can't stay with you for the rest of my life. During his moving acceptance speech, Troy paid tribute to his dad. And at that moment, I knew we had to have him here on Dad Saves America. Dad, I learned so much from you. I'll always love you. You are my hero. The film and Troy's personal story are truly inspiring. They contain valuable lessons that can help each of us overcome the barriers we face and inspire all of us for the future. For this episode, you'll be hearing the voice of Troy's interpreter, Justin Maurer. Okay, so Troy, I just learned this. Um, welcome to Dad Saves America. Thank you. <laughs> this, it's nice to be here. This is such an honor for me. Um, you are the first Oscar-winning actor to be in our little show, so it is a great honor. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my honor to be here. It's nice to have a chat, and here we are. So let's dig in. What is a coda? A CODA is an acronym for Child of a Deaf Adult, and CODA for short. And so this hearing person grows up in a deaf family with deaf parents or deaf siblings, and basically they learned how to interact with the deaf, and we call them CODA. They're a member of our community. Your movie, CODA, was so beautiful. Uh, you know, it was funny because when my wife and I were watching the film, two things happened. First with all of the, uh, you know, the big hand gestures, my wife said to me, they look like an Italian family. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the last name Rossi is obviously Italian. <laughs> and then the second thing was, uh, our son is 17. And so the story of your daughter wanting to leave home and be their own person really touched us. And so we've spent a lot of the, the movie actually crying the second half. When our movie came out, you know, all these people that had seen it came up to me and said, oh, Troy, I cried so much and I felt so many emotions. And it's what is so beautiful about our story is it reminds parents when they're raising their children, you know, one day it'll be time to let go. And that's an extremely hard part of parenting, to let go of your children. And some, some kids don't understand that, and they're just excited to get out in the real world. But then looking back, many of them are grateful for letting, for having their parents having let them go, because they were able to experience their personal journeys. And that's why our film was so important, especially during the pandemic, to remind people to cherish their families with all of these closures and isolation. And so CODA came out at the right time, and it felt like 
you could remember to cherish your family that you were on lockdown with. And there were so many people out there that were touched and they never thought of a deaf perspective or a deaf family's perspective either. And there was plenty of hearing people all over the world that were quite oblivious to the deaf experience. So it's like a wake up call. And that, that was what was missing is people forgot about us, the deaf community. And then we managed to touch the, the, these audiences. So our film's message reached out all over the country and all over the world. And what more, the White House, uh, President Joe Biden invited the cast of CODA to come to the White House and told us they had watched CODA twice and they were so touched and it reminded them of their family. And Joe Biden gave us a tour of the Oval Office with all of his family photos of his grandchildren and, and he's really a family guy. And so it was, yeah. it was amazing. One of the things that surprised me about watching the film was I never really thought, even though ASL is sign language, I never really thought about the fact that it truly is its own unique language. Were there, were there other things like that that people have told you sort of their minds were opened about when they saw the movie? Well, I think what hearing audiences learned was generally just having a diff different perspective, having a perspective shift. Because in the past, they always tended to have one deaf role that had to be taken care of, and they would, didn't really focus on sign language. There was really something missing. And Coda was perfect because the, the character Ruby, who plays the Coda, is representative of the hearing world and also the deaf world because she communicates in sign language and spoken English and is at the center of the story. And that's where finally there was a bridge. And this bridge bridged the gap that had been missing for so long. And CODA really made so many folks learn about this perspective and become a fly on the wall into a deaf culture and a deaf family. The only difference is language. We think the same. We have to, we worry about paying bills. We drive, we struggle, we play golf and all of the above, just like hearing people do. The only difference is sign language, the language we communicate in. And so it's like, oh, you're missing this important sound. But don't forget we have eyes and our eyes are equal to your ears. And finally, our film showed that and showed the beauty of sign language. And it is its own language. It is its own culture. And so that's it, period. In the movie, uh, there's, um, there's a lot of profanity. <laughs> Talk to me about that because it was really a surprising thing to, uh, to experience. I've never seen anything like that before. So when I first read the script, I saw there was some dirty language in sign language. Of course, I was thrilled to showcase this on the big screen. And I'm sure so many people are curious, what do vulgarities look like in sign language? As a deaf audience, we've seen all your hearing movies with subtitles, with the F-bombs and so on. And we're used to those swear words in English, but where was our opportunity to show that part of our culture? And finally, we were given that opportunity. And really, it's some new information that's unexpected, right? And so I'm like, where have you all been? So imagine, this actually happened. So the MPAA, they decided to give CODA an R rating at first because right. yeah. the, the members <laughs> thought that the vulgarities were so over the top that they gave us an R rating. And so we actually, our entire team had to go back and forth with them and they said, that's a part of deaf culture, that's a part of ASL. And finally they reduced the rating to PG-13. And so it was a relief for everyone, but 
it was like shocking to them, but it was great when I read the script. I was like, it's about time to have that opportunity to show our colorful language. And there's, it's, it's even more over the top than a lot of people think. And when I re read the script in English, of course, it's written in English, right? And that's the vision of our writer and director. And I know the intention behind the English, but I know the deaf cultural perspective on that. So sometimes the ASL can be even further, surpass what is written in English. And so it's a great benefit of sign language. There's so many possibilities. And you can explain even more details. You know, say in a car, this, the air goes into the exhaust pipe and the interpreter has to struggle to figure out where to put in all those English words. But in sign language, it's so detailed and it can be yeah. a challenge. We are ahead of the game. And that's why it's so great to show what that looks like on the big screen. It's equal to or even surpasses the English language. What's interesting about that is, so I grew up drawing and so I love the, the, the image. And they say a picture's worth a thousand words. And in a way, I feel like the expressiveness of the language is so much richer, especially with the profanity. Like the profanity is not just a word, it's a visual expression that's your face and your hands. And so maybe that's why the MPAA <laughs> sort of struggled with it, because it's actually more impactful uh, in a lot of ways, I think, than just hearing somebody say a cuss word. <laughs> Absolutely. And to have that opportunity to surpass even what they expected was, was incredible. And I, sign language is such a rich language and you really feel, you can feel the impact even without, without spoken dialogue. You can feel so much emotion through the eyes and the facial expressions that really tells you a lot. So believe it or not, you know, even without voiceover, you can feel the passion in sign language. And that scene with Ruby yeah, and her the, father, Frank, on the back of the flatbed pickup truck, everything oh. was communicated through the eyes. And so I wanted to leave the audience to make their own interpretation of that scene, emotionally themselves, even without spoken dialogue. And at that moment, it was so powerful. And everyone can really have their individual emotional reaction. Like you said, so many people out there cried watching our film. And some real tough guys admitted that they cried. I met Javier Bardem. And Javier Bardem, of course, was in No Country for Old Men, where he plays that, that hitman, right? And he's such a tough guy. And he admitted he cried like a baby. And I couldn't even imagine him crying, you know what I mean? When you read the script, did you have any sense that the movie would go as far as it did. I did. I actually knew it. When we were working on set and we were shooting, I was studying how our director and crew had everything set up and the story and their vision for the first couple of weeks. And us cast members had this incredible chemistry. And the script was written in a way that no one had seen before. And so I thought, yes, of course, this will be special, this will be unique, and this will be an important film. Our director, Sean Hader, I told her, remember three words. I told you so. And she said, what do you mean? And I goes, you'll know, you'll know what I mean. This is gonna be good. She goes, I hope so. And I said, yeah, we'll wait and see. So then at Sundance, we received four awards. And I said, hey, Sean, remember those three, three words I told you? And then later on, Apple, bought our film with a new record for $25 million. And then it led to all of these nominations and awards. And I told Sean again, remember those three words, I told you so. 
Good. And I knew that there was something there. I knew that this would impact audiences. And I knew that this film was something we were waiting for. And so many people out there never thought about that gap that was missing between the deaf and hearing communities. And our film Coda really filled that hole in. And we were able to interact and experience this film together. And I've seen so many changes, a cultural shift. Hollywood is now more open-minded and wants more deaf folks involved in productions and disabled folks too. And CODAs, children of deaf adults. All of us can have more opportunities because of CODA and it's amazing. What kind of roles do you uh, do you seek out and do you like to play? Because I imagine there's a typecast that that happens with deaf roles. So I'm curious, sort of over your career, what has been, where have you really leapt at a role, and where have you found uh, that even though this is an opportunity, I don't want to be a part of this for one reason or another. So. I would like to show the range of my capabilities. I'd love to play a villain, or I'd love to play a successful businessman. I don't want to limit myself just as deaf. I'd like to play any role. So I played a serial killer in the series Criminal Minds. Oh yes. And so my character escapes from prison, and the police are chasing this character, and he kills several hearing people. And he sews their lips together to shut them up. He doesn't want them to talk. And there was a cochlear implant design issue with noise. And so he sews the hearing people's lips together and the police are investigating. It was such an amazing role to play that, that villain, that serial killer. And then I would love to play a doctor, a lawyer, or any historical figure from the past. And especially in the deaf community, we have an amazing history of historical figures. I might ask you a question. Do you know who Dummy Hoy is? I don't. He's the first deaf pro baseball player. And he's the one who invented and taught the umpire out and safe and strike and ball and all of those hand signals, foul ball and so on. But the umpire took credit for it. Uh, and so that's a piece of history that's missing. There was another character called Deaf Smith, and he was a spy in the 1830s during the war between Texas and Mexico during the... Texas Revolution. And so a lot of people don't know about this deaf spy. So I like to bring all these stories forward. So we've seen all of these, the history about American history, George Washington, Lincoln, and you know, of course, the history of other marginalized communities, but where's our opportunity? And so I'd really like to bring that forward. There's a lot of history of marginalization and oppression in the deaf community. And that's why I, and who did that marginalization and, and oppression? The hearing people did. It was language deprivation, and they deprived us of our language. And it's still going on today, believe it or not, where they're trying to eradicate sign language. And so I really want to cherish our culture and carry on these traditions. One of the things that is so important about your movie, I think, is I looked up that there's under a million deaf Americans. I don't know if that includes people who are also um, hard of hearing, but your movie creates exposure. And I think we've learned over time that when people are exposed to people of, that are different than them, it opens their minds and it opens their hearts to them. And I think that that's something that your movie does in a really, really powerful way. When I was growing up, I was so tired of hearing about all of these issues all over 
the U.S. and a deaf person sued a company that didn't provide interpreting services, or there was discrimination, layoffs, or even hospitals didn't provide interpreters. Or if someone arrested a deaf person, sometimes they didn't believe they were deaf, and there was no communication or access for that deaf person in jail. And then that deaf person sues that police department. But people all over, you know, like, like you or many others, maybe haven't heard of deaf culture and deaf history and ASL. So how can we improve things? And then I knew a way. It was Hollywood was a great place and a great platform to educate the world because the world loves watching Hollywood films. So I worked hard for 35 years on my journey. And finally now I have the opportunity to educate the world on this is sign language and it should be cherished because the world will listen. And so finally I'm hoping that we're able to influence communities all over to improve things for better and improve access for deaf people, especially our deaf children and their future. One of the reasons that I was so excited for you to come on this show is because of that beautiful speech you gave at the Oscars and where you thanked your father and, uh, and told his story. Tell me about your dad. Like, wh what did he do? What kind of man was he? When I gave my Oscar speech and mentioned my dad, I was looking way back. And keep in mind that back in the 60s and 70s, there really wasn't any access for deaf people. You know, a lot of audiologists and doctors didn't know what to do with when deaf babies were born. And so when my parents found out I was deaf, they did not know what to do. And I'm so grateful to that specific doctor who encouraged them to learn sign language and make sure that they could communicate with their deaf child. And so they ended up putting me in a school for the deaf, and that was my first exposure to ASL. And at that time, my father took the time to learn. And what I learned at school, I would come home and teach my father. And my father learned sign. Mom, Dad, I love you. You know, milk, hamburger, food, I want to play. And we'd go back and forth and learn this language together. You know, I didn't pay attention until I was much older. And looking back, I remember that I was in a baseball league with all hearing kids. And my father was watching us interact and he saw my isolation and loneliness because no one else signed. So my dad was trying to figure out how he could find a way that I could be in involved. And so the f my father ended up becoming a head coach for our baseball team. And my father was hoping that him signing would influence the other kids and they might pick up several signs. But the problem was that all these hearing kids, even I had friends over, but how can I communicate with their hearing parents? So my dad was thinking even further. So the following year, he reached out and he found that all of these deaf kids from my school that we didn't all live in the same city. We were quite spread out all over the yeah. metropolitan Phoenix area, somewhere in Phoenix, somewhere in different cities, somewhere in different counties. And so my dad looked for a center point to bring in all these deaf kids, and he set up a soccer team with all deaf kids. And so my dad found a deaf coach who coached us. And so my dad was watching, and then he learned a lot, and he saw how much I was enjoying interact with all these kids because we communicated in the same language. And he met these deaf kids' parents. Some were deaf, some were hearing, who had similar experiences. Then my dad all of a sudden had a support system for himself and these other hearing parents. And so I didn't really think about how that happened, but my dad did that. 
that was so beautiful of him to see and want what was best for me. And my father was an extremely busy man. He was a, he was a policeman and he rose the ranks and eventually became the police chief. And he was extremely busy, but he still took the time to learn sign language. Over the years, my father taught me how to play golf. He took me fishing. He took me water skiing. And we did a lot of activities. And so I have so many memories and I'll always have those memories. But my dad was so supportive. And he asked me if I would consider having a cochlear implant. And I said, hey, you know, I've never thought of that before. Nah, no, no thanks. And the following year, he asked me again. And I said, no, you know, I'm fine. I don't need it. This is who I am. I'm deaf. And I understood that he was a bit worried about my future because of communication, because there's so many hearing people out there in the world. And my dad was thinking ahead and a bit worried. And then two months before I graduated high school, Someone let me know that my father was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver. And my father was brought to the hospital. And the doctor let us know he's going to die in two days. And that night, we just freaked out. We were so emotional. I was upset. I was angry. And I'll never forget jumping in the car and driving through the night into an alley you know, where they put out the trash cans. And I was so emotional. I, I was just punching the roof of the car, driving through these alleys, knocking into trash cans. And I came to a stop and I parked in a par empty parking lot that was closed at night. And I just burst into tears. I was so upset that that had happened to my father. And I remember falling down into my knees there in the asphalt of the parking lot and just seeing the droplets of rain. It began to rain. And at that moment, I feel like God was sharing his tears with me. So I got back in my car and drove back to the hospital just to say goodbye to my father. So I got to the hospital and it was about six o'clock in the morning. And the doctor told me an interpreter did show up and so it was a friend of mine from school who knew my situation. So he was there to support us. So he said, hey, your father's improving and the infection is reducing. And we were surprised. It was like a miracle. And we were like, really? And we were so relieved that our father was still alive. And he kept on going for 16 years, but he was paralyzed from the neck down. And so he had seven bones that had been broken in his spine that he could now no longer walk and could no longer sign. So that forced us as a family to adapt. And it was an emotional struggle to go through. And I wasn't used to seeing my father at home for months at a time. You know, he didn't show up at my graduation speech at my high school, but my brother filmed it. He filmed my speech and the next day, my brother brought the VHS. You remember those VHS tapes from back then? And he stuck it into the VCR. And my father was in the hospital and he watched my speech and he just burst into tears. He almost just fell apart. He was so proud of me. And we made it, we made it through. And one thing I'd like to add is that my little brother, when he was four years old and I was seven, he had an he accidentally fell into our swimming pool. 
and could not swim. And so it caused severe brain damage, but he was still alive, the drowning. And so they brought him to the hospital and they found we had to stay in the hospital because he needed life support through, through machines. And so every Sunday for the following years, every single Sunday, we went to the hospital, we picked up my brother, we brought him into the back of our car that had, we had pillows and blankets set up. And I sat in the back and held my brother and we'd go home and we'd bring him to be with the family every single Sunday. And my mother, my, my parents and my brothers were chatting with him and just socialized with him all day and we had to bring him back to the hospital. Every single Sunday we made that commute when I was growing up. And so looking back at my dad, you know, now you might understand why my dad is my hero. He did so much. And I'm so lucky and so grateful to be having, have had such a great dad growing up. I'm so fortunate. And I remember after high school, I stayed with my family and took care of my father, helped feed him. My father couldn't feed himself. We'd have to feed him. And so we had this long straw that he could use and I'd fill up his cup. I'd drive him places. We'd go see movies. I'd change his clothes. I'd put him onto his bed and there was all these machines. And I remember one day my father was sitting there and said, Troy, you need to go. We have enough family members here who can take care of me. Don't worry, you need to go. And, and I wasn't quite ready to go. I said, I wanted to be near you, you know, and he said, no, Troy, you'll be fine. I said, okay. He said, I want you to go into the real world and have these life experiences and follow your heart and follow your spark and see where that takes you. And so I let go and I went to Gallaudet University. I went to NTID. I worked at Sunshine 2 Theater Company. I was on tour. I worked in all these different theaters. I moved to California, Deaf West Theater. I was in these productions for so many years and that led me to who I became. And so here I am. And so looking back, now you might understand why my dad was so important to me and why he's my hero. You know, me looking at myself as deaf, being deaf was nothing. To see what my father went through. My dad couldn't play golf. I can play golf. My father couldn't go on a boat. I could. I can drive. My dad couldn't drive. And looking at myself, being deaf, so what? That taught me to be confident in myself and my attitude. I didn't care what people thought about me. And my dad didn't care what people thought about how he looked sitting in his wheelchairs because it wasn't pretty. His hands were kind of completely flat. He couldn't bend his fingers. And so I saw his courage. And that reminded me to be confident in myself and to be brave. And that's why I learned so much from my dad. It's very emotional story and very difficult to hear. And the roles were reversed in a lot of ways. Yeah, I thought about that a lot. You know, it would have been worse. Like if I couldn't sign being paralyzed, how would I communicate? I'm sure there might be a way or a technology. You know, if you remember Stephen Hawking, 
Yeah. And so he used this specialized computer to communicate, which is interesting. And so I often wondered about that. What if it had been me who was paralyzed? You know, I don't, I didn't want to be selfish. I just want to be grateful for what I have. In a lot of ways, both you and your brother and your father um, could embrace feeling like a victim. You know, that you have challenges. And how did you, and how did your dad help you see the brighter side, see the side that isn't um, victimhood, but is potential, is, um, is power, is, is, is capability? Because I feel like this is a lesson that a lot of kids that frankly have less challenges than you and your family faced, they get trapped in this mentality. So we have all this depression in our society today. We have this anxiety. And when I hear your story, it's, it's empowering in part because you've overcome so much together as a family. How do you think about that? When my dad worked in the police department and rose through the ranks and then retired, I, I wondered what he would do. And he ended up teaching at community college. He taught law enforcement at community college, even paralyzed in a wheelchair. He was still able to use his voice. And he had an assistant to help with grade the paperwork. My dad persisted. He didn't care. He never stopped. And every time I would go to different theaters, uh, when I was in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Texas, my parents would get in the van and there was access for my dad's wheelchair in the van and they would drive long distances to see my place. And they didn't care what people thought about them. And the, f the friends that I acted with who had never met my dad, my dad would just say, hi, nice to meet you. You know, he, he would just shake their hand like this. And was, he was so brave. He had so much courage. That was his attitude. He didn't let his disability stop him. So therefore I couldn't let mine stop me. And it was a tragedy that was quite early in my life that taught me how to grow and to remember what was important about a father to be responsible and protect your family and do what's best for your children. And so today I have such, so many rich memories in my heart with everything my father did. And I'll always carry those memories with me. So let's go back to, to the beginning. When, when did your parents first realize that you were deaf? How old were you and, and, and what happened? How did they discover this? So when I was growing up, I was maybe 10 or 11. And out of curiosity, I asked my parents, when did you find out I was deaf? And my mom told me this story. And she said, when I was nine months old, they didn't know that I was deaf until I was nine months. So I was a baby, right? And so my mom was cleaning in the kitchen and set me down on the floor. And I was playing on the kitchen floor and my mother was cleaning and she accidentally hit a pot and the pot fell on the floor with this loud clattering sound. She checked on me and I didn't respond. And I didn't look at the pot where it had fallen. I just continued to play. So my mom picked up a second pot and began to slam these pots and pans together and I didn't react to the noise whatsoever and wasn't frightened by it. She went and saw my face and I was smiling and I seemed happy 
And she was perplexed and started yelling my name, Troy, and clapping her hands. And I had no reaction. She was quite scared. So when my dad got home from work, she said, hey, I think there's something wrong with our son. And so my mom clapped and made noise and I didn't react. And they looked at each other and they were scared and took me to see a doctor. And the doctor informed them that their son was deaf. And of course they broke out into tears. They were scared, they didn't know what to do. It's pretty common that hearing parents react in that way when they find out they have a deaf child because they don't have any resources and are, aren't sure what to do. It takes some time to figure it out. And so it was nine months old and that's when they found out I was deaf. And now today, of course, with technology, when a child is born, they can test their hearing the same day. Right. And then they can set up an educational plan for those kids and there's great programs and provide these kids with what they need. And that includes sign language and speech therapy and all of the different options. But they found out through the family doctor, they sent me to a school for the deaf and that fit my needs. And I was able to develop my own identity as a deaf person. So ASL is my first language. And through the years, my parents loved ASL and deaf culture, and they learned a lot. And I'll never forget my parents saying, ASL is a gift, and it is such a beautiful language. And it's a gift in this world that people need to see. And this is back in 1986 when my father mentioned that. Wow. And today, there's still language deprivation going on with ASL attempting people are attempting to eradicate it, so it needs to be preserved. Tell me about that. When you say language deprivation, um, what are you talking about? So when babies are in between the age of zero and five, right, for hearing babies, they develop vocabulary words, they make spoken sounds, noises, and then eventually they make complete sentences and that's developed into a language before they enter kindergarten. That's called language acquisition. And so from my experience, from zero to five, I had no language at all. I didn't have access to a language. That's called language deprivation because many deaf kids don't have access to language before entering kindergarten. And there's a law called Lead K that's a bill focusing on language exposure in sign language to deaf children so they can develop language before entering kindergarten. If not, they're way behind their hearing peers, they have frustrations, they have mental health issues, and they, have, they can't uh, talk with their peers, right? So it's so important to have ASL as a part of language acquisition as opposed to deprivation so they have that option for education for deaf kids. So, and uh, I have one more, one more example. Yeah. Several schools for the deaf in different states, they've actually been cutting their budgets or even folding these deaf schools to have these kids transfer to public schools because of, they feel like there's no benefit to sign language, but they're dead wrong. And until CODA, CODA really is now educating folks on the power of ASL and making them think differently with a new perspective. And we really need to cherish that language. One of the things that I hadn't been exposed to before this was the idea that ASL as a native language would be preferable to a cochlear implant. And I remember seeing a story of parents who um, <coughs> didn't want to have their baby um, or, or, or young child have the cochlear implant. 
And I'm going to be honest, when I heard this story at first, I, I was kind of angry. Why wouldn't you want your child to be able to hear? And I didn't understand what, what would that, why would you be doing that? And so um, for, for someone that hears that, um, like myself, help me understand why it would, it would be, it's why it's complicated, why it's a complicated question to use these devices and to choose not to use the most modern technology to try to assist the hearing capability of somebody who's deaf or uh, hard of hearing. There's a lot there. There's a lot of politics involved in that. And so I'm here to say what I have observed in my personal opinion, just to make that clear. Sure. ASL saved my life and I am data. I'm a real deaf person who grew up deaf, and I've, I'm 53.75 years old. And the accumulation of all my experiences out there, I've seen what is best for deaf children. And what is, and audiologists and doctors need to give these options, and those include sign language. Deaf people are not broken. Deaf people don't need to be fixed. You know, you can't fix a deaf person. People are still of that old way of thinking, and they think a cochlear implant will solve 100% of these communication problems and breakdowns. That's the old way of thinking that needs to be pushed aside. It's much more important that these kids have the right to choose their own identity and choose whether they want a cochlear implant or not, because they need to find their own identities. I've heard, I've heard so many stories out there that cochlear implants are not always successful. It really just depends on the individual. There's not a standard for every person. It depends on your level of hearing loss. Myself, I'm completely deaf at 120 decibels in one ear, 90 in the other. Cochlear implant would not help me. Even at 50 decibels, I wouldn't be able to hear. So if someone wants, maybe could gain about 50% hearing, maybe there would be a benefit there, but it's so important that not to ignore ASL and make sure that these kids have access to that language. If they want a cochlear implant, make sure you don't neglect ASL as a part of their educational plan. And that way they have time to find their own identity when they grow up. And sometimes there might be a little bit of residual hearing after surgery. They'll damage any residual hearing during that surgery. You can't get that hearing back. And there are quite a number of risks to that cochlear implant surgery. I've met several people who were half paralyzed in their face after there was a uh, mishap in the cochlear implant surgery. I love playing sports. And as a kid, I loved play, to play sports. A lot of kids who have cochlear implants cannot play sports because they get extreme headaches. And sometimes you have to replace it and clean it and continue speech therapy and there's a lot of costs and emotional costs for these kids. But sign language is priceless. It's easy to learn. It's online, you can socialize with friends. Cochlear implants, you know, there's a lot behind it. There's big business and big companies and a lot of manipulation going on of parents. And so it costs 100,000, 50,000. All the insurance companies support it because of the profits. So they choose to ignore and marginalize ASL. So today we're still fighting to make sure that there's equal access to ASL for these deaf kids. So these deaf kids can have a choice and build an identity. There, can, there should be a marriage between cochlear implants and ASL, but there's so much controversy. 
In Sacramento, there's a book, there's a program that was focused on cochlear implants. And so it's all this literature for parents about cochlear implants. And the very end in small print, it says ASL. And so, hey, ASL needs to be considered as an equal. So we've had so much controversy. So, so far, I've seen a number of states, there's about 22 states who have passed this lead K law for deaf children to have the option to give them the right to learn ASL. And so, yes, it's a complicated issue and an emotional issue, but hey, I'm deaf, I'm fine. Why should I fix myself to fit outside the outside world and struggle doing that? This is who I am. And the problem is how the outside world perceives me and how many people are willing to learn our language and our culture. You said that your parents found out that you were deaf when you were nine months old, but that you didn't really start to develop language until until you were five. Were you too young to learn ASL or could they not afford it? Or, or tell me about that situation because I can only imagine what that does to a, a young developing child to not have a way to communicate for such an important period of time. I remember when my parents found out I was deaf and they, had, they did some research and it actually took them a few years. They bought a book, I remember this book it was called Signing Exact English. It was a real old book, outdated. It wasn't ASL, right? And so that was designed by hearing people. So my parents had learned S-E-E, or Signing Exact English. I am walking. That's English, right? ASL is, I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm walking. There's a big difference there. So anyway, my point was is that my father was learning, and we had developed some home signs. And so when I would see a yellow toy, a toy truck, it was like a dump truck, I, I'd say this, I'd gesture and point. And so they would do it. And so we ended up creating our own home signs. Hmm. And my father had put me into a special school to evaluate me and socialize with different types of kids. Some were deaf, some were hearing, some were special needs, some were deaf. And there was all these different programs. And so they figured that sign language would be the best for me educationally. And so that was the best option was the school for the deaf. And that's when I finally started uh, about kindergarten. And there was a program for my parents to take sign language at that school so that they could communicate at home. So they were way behind and had to catch up. And so if there was already a design program from zero to five, if you find out a kid is deaf, you provide options and resources and programs. And most of them focus on speech. And, and so it's like, hello, where's ASL? Don't ignore ASL. Bring it together with that speech therapy. And so that's where the controversy is. Again, the thing about the movie that makes it so interesting and I think is gonna have a huge implication for this conversation, this debate, is you just see how rich and expressive a language it is. Again, thinking about the profanity. <laughs> it's like, I wish I could curse in ASL. <laughs> well, it's up to you. You know, that's a big advantage for hearing people. You can swear and other people won't know what you're saying. But I've had a, I had a bad experience in the past. When I was playing basketball, I was the one deaf kid on a hearing team at the public school. Uh, I transferred to a public school after the school for the deaf to have that challenge socializing with hearing people. And it taught me to grow and how to handle this code switching between two cultures. So I joined the basketball team at the public school. And a few weeks later, I made a few friends. 
and they all wanted to learn dirty sign language. So I taught them a few signs. And it just so happened during a game, we were playing in a pretty intense game, and one of my players on my team was fouled. And so he said, and all the players started laughing on the bench, and the coach was like, what's that? What did he just do? What did he sign? And he looked over, and he was like, they were all, all laughing. And the next day, after practice was over, the coach came up to me and said, hey, everybody, you got to run suicide drills. 17 laps. Because you learned sign language, because he asked the interpreter, what does that mean? And the interpreter said, that means <laughs> And so everyone was punished and had to run these suicide drills. And then they let everyone go, and then the coach says, and you, Troy, you stay. You got to do another 17 laps for teaching everyone dirty sign language. Don't do that on my team. And I was like, ah. Oh. And so all the other players left, and I had to do 17 more laps. And so they were like, cool, dirty sign language during a game. No one in the, in the bleachers would know those signs. If you yell it, you could hear the swear word. But I still got in trouble. <laughs> what was your most difficult school experience? Well, I grew up going to the school for the deaf, and I was very comfortable there. It was a friendly environment. I could chat with everyone in sign language. Everyone on the basketball and football team and coaches all could sign fluently in ASL. It was great. Toughest challenge was when I transferred to the public school yeah. because most of them didn't know sign language. And it was a, there was about 2,000 kids. The school for the deaf at that time only had 60 kids. It was a big transition for me. The football players, we only had eight players at the school for the deaf, and then they had 11. They had a bigger team. They were more athletic. It was quite a challenge. And I did get bullied quite a bit. And I remember I was a bit scared before that transition. It was maybe about freshman year. So I was on the bus, and all the windows on the bus were open, and we were, the kids on the bus were kindergarten through seniors in high school. They were all deaf students on one bus because everyone lived in different part of the Phoenix metropolitan area. So we'd go past the public school, and all of a sudden, there's water balloons being thrown in the windows, and all the hearing kids were throwing water balloons at the deaf kids. And it said, school for the deaf on the side of the bus. So it was obvious who we were. And the hearing kids were mocking sign language and throwing water balloons at us. And so I made a plan. The following day after school, I, I, I was very careful. I brought a package of eggs with a dozen eggs in my backpack. And I, I distributed the eggs right before we went by the same school. And so we nailed them with eggs. And it started a war. But that point was that that was the same school I transferred to. And so I was crazy. And so I was scared because, and so I made that transition. I played on the football team. And I was the only deaf player. And there were interpreters that would show up from time to time. And I played on the basketball teams. And let me tell you a story about playing football. Yeah. So the hearing players, there was about 40 or 50 players, right? And so the coach let everyone know, we have a deaf football player, that guy, and pointed at me. Stand up. So I stood up. And they said, you're going to learn to work with him. And the coach was trying to figure out the best position for me. So he put me as center. 
It's like me, center. Okay, that's fine. So it's like, how am I going to hear them say hut, hut, hike? I can't hear it. And he goes, don't worry, I have an idea. Tap, tap his pad. Like, you know, right on my butt where the pad was. That was hut. Okay, hut. And I'd feel the hut. I'd say, okay, you know, it felt weird at first, but we went ahead with that plan. And so if there was two, it would mean there's two taps. And then I'd hike the ball. And if there was one, it was just one, one tap and I'd hike the ball. But it seemed to work. And what was interesting was the quarterback, we developed our own signs on the football team, like secret code, like T left meant trap left. Yeah. And so we we block in that direction. T right meant we'd block to the right. To pass meant that we'd go back. So we had these pass two meant there was two taps or one tap or three or whatever. So we made up our own signs on the football team. We had 10 wins, zero losses that season. And But I do have a funny story. So That's one amazing. game, our first string quarterback was injured. And so they switched in the second string quarterback. They put him in. He forgot I was deaf. And so he yelled. He yelled hut and he didn't tap me and and we and got he got sacked. And the quarterback was like, What happened? And I go, I didn't feel the tap. Hit me harder. Tap my p- pad on my butt. And he goes, Okay, I'll try. So the second time. Yeah. He got sacked again. And so we got another penalty. And it was so embarrassing. And I was like, he goes, I did tap you. I go, I have a pad there. You have to hit it harder. Hit it harder. Tap it. He goes, okay. And then finally, it, it worked. And we ended up winning that game. But it was a bit awkward at first. But you learn how to collaborate and work together when you're working with a deaf person. I learned how to work with the hearing people too, and they learned how to work with me. So, But there was a bully, and this happened on my team. So I played center, and during practice, I was hiking the ball to the quarterback, and he'd throw a pass, and they'd go down the line, right, and, and pass the ball. And so the guy who passed the ball would come back and give me the ball back, and I'd hike it again. And there was one apple, and this guy would walk up and come right up to me, and then he would just spike the ball in front of me rather than hand it to me. And you know where a football goes. It's unpredictable where a football's going to bounce. And so I'd have to walk all the way over here, pick up the ball, and the same guy came around the second time. He did the same thing the second time. So I played it cool. The third time, I predicted he was probably going to do this again, and I remember his facial expression with the helmet. So he was checking throughout the corner of his eye to see if the coach was looking. And then he was... And then he did it the third time. And I was so pissed off, I grabbed him and just threw him onto the ground. And I picked up the ball and I spiked it in his face. But the coach saw me doing that and thought I was abusing him. It, but he missed what had happened previously. And he suspended me and, and threw me out of practice for two days. But it wasn't my fault. And I was like, okay, I had to come back. I had to be patient. Sometimes some of these kids were cool. Sometimes they were really screwed up. And on the basketball team, I really felt like I was a clown. Because these players really enjoyed playing around with me, knowing that I was deaf and teasing me. Sometimes it was in a good way. 
But I remember these two players were sitting on the bus, and there was a magazine. And of course, it was Sports Illustrated with a swimsuit edition. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting there looking over, and they're opening it like this. Oh, look at this, look at this, just to see how I would react. Oh, look at this one. And it was like they were teasing me, you know, and I didn't care. I was like, whatever. And later on, it just so happened that every night after the game, uh, during the away games, they'd ask us all to kind of sit down as a team. They'd say, hey, get out, go get a breath of fresh air to get ready before game night. And so I'd follow the rest of my team wherever they went outside. And if they stood up, I'd follow them to have a meeting with our coach and I'd follow them. Then... I was always following them, right? Because, of course, I was deaf. I didn't know where they were going. I didn't hear what the coach said. I just had to watch, follow my team captain wherever they went. But it just so happened I was following them once, and we went into the men's restroom. And it was pretty tight with all the players in there. And I'm standing there, and they're all acting like ducks. Quack, 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 quack. And I was like, what are you? And I realized I was following them like a lemming wherever they were going. Why is that? And so they were making fun of me. But we're on the same team. We should support each other. We should care about each other. What's your definition of teamwork? So after that game, we lost that game. So that explains it. Anyway, you know, I had a good time playing sports. But looking back, it was just there was a different way of teasing someone or bullying someone. But... But what I went through, you know, really taught me to grow as a person and to be patient with all of these crazies out there before I went into the real world. And so that taught me to taught me strength. And after my father's accident, all of these friends changed and had much more were much more respectful to me. And they voted me one of to give the the speech at my high school when I was a senior. With so I signed it and my interpreter voiced for me. And so that speech was about what had happened in my father's accident because all these kids knew my, who my father was as the police chief and he was very well known and loved in the community in my hometown. And even a lot of teachers at my school knew my dad. But it took me, taught me patience. It taught me how to self-control. It really made me a better person Every, going everything through all those tragedies early in life. In so many ways, those are the things that every kid is going through in school, right? You had, you had one version of it being deaf, but do you think that in a way, the bullying, you said it sort of helped you be prepared. Do you think that we've maybe gone too far in our culture about, about bullying, where now kids are maybe not getting some of those experiences, even if they're hard, and that it's setting them up to be oversensitive as adults or be unprepared for some of these much more difficult challenges that happen in life? You know, my best advice is adults need to give these kids good advice. They need to have good teachers to teach them to be patient. And one day the bully will feel like a fool. And this bully, when he learned that my father was in a car accident, of course, he changed his attitude completely and was much more respectful and even offered friendship. And so I think that's amazing advice is the tables will turn. 
when I won Best Actor at the Oscars, I'm getting all these messages from people I haven't heard from for a long time, right? So it's nice to reconnect with a lot of those people. And some of these people say, hey, Troy, where's your Oscar 10 or 15 years ago? Hey, Troy, why are you acting? You're, you're, why are you struggling? you got to think about a retirement plan and your future. And now look who's laughing. It's sweet revenge. I got this gold Oscar and they can all shut their mouth. And it was just a matter of time. Your dad was very um, involved, not just in the community, but also in the church, wasn't he? Tell me about the way, um, the role religion played in your family. When I was growing up, I, I have two older brothers, right? And so we'd go to church, and I missed all the information because there was no interpreters and no access. It was a Catholic church. And my two brothers, I remember, wore those funny clothes, the white robes with the black, and they walked down the aisle with the cross, and I'd laugh at them. I'm like, I thought they looked feminine. So I enjoyed making fun of my brothers. That was my favorite part of the whole thing. But after a few weeks, my dad, my parents looked over, and they're like, you know, Troy needs to know about religion and the church. And so they were, they were looking, and they found another church. It was a Christian church that had a program in sign language. And so they put me into this program. And at, looking back, I remember just my father would always try and find a way to make sure I had access. So I went to this Christian program and I learned a bit. And through the years, my father found out they, had, they were able to provide interpreters. And so one day I was shocked. My dad walked up and gave a sermon as a guest, a guest sermon hmm. on the pulpit. And I was blown away. I was like... Dad, you have time for this? You know, I'd never seen my father as a priest, right? And so and that really inspired me when my dad did that. He was very involved in our community. And from time to time, he'd do something like that. And there, in our community, there was folks who were disabled, who needed access. This is even before my dad was in his accident, right? He was involved in the community. Ironically, he continued to be involved in the disabled community because of his experience in the car accident, becoming disabled himself. So I was so impressed with my father. And every year, they would give honorary awards to recognize these folks with disabilities who were successful. So they used my father's name on this award. And then they, he asked me to take over the speech for him. So next August, I'm going back to my hometown to present this award. And it's under our father's name, which is beautiful of him to have been involved in all of these different communities. And so you still see my dad's name everywhere, even today. I'm so, I'm so proud. And he was so involved. You know, if my dad was involved in the community, that means I can be involved. Like Deaf West Theater, I can support them and give more opportunities for deaf actors. Or TV and film projects, I can bring up young, young deaf actors or just really help to encourage all of these marginalized communities to share their experiences and their stories. And I'm so excited to be a part of it. And I'm thrilled to have become a member of the Academy. That means I can vote for all these nominations. That'll be fun for me. I can't wait. That's really amazing. What advice do you have to a parent who realizes that they have a deaf child or a child that has, that's hard of hearing in, in a serious way? You know, seeing, just from your experience with your own father, like, what's your advice? If your child happens to be born deaf, make sure that you see a doctor 
who is able to understand what is best for a deaf child and make sure that as a parent, you understand. Imagine if you're in your child's world and you're in your child's little shoes, what their journey of that child might be like. You know, I can't, you don't want to paint the child the color purple to fit your color. You don't paint them differently. You just let the child grow with you and you grow with your child. So be a bit prepared, learn sign language. And regarding cochlear implants, make sure sign language is not ignored or neglected. There's options, like you can start with the hearing aid. Some deaf kids can hear with the hearing aid a little bit. And so when the kids grow up, then see where that leads to. And maybe if the kid becomes strong going down that path, if the kids want, they could get a cochlear implant. And maybe they can lean towards ASL, and that's fine. You can go down any path, but it's more, most important that parents support their kids on that journey. They need to follow their child. And depending on what that individual needs, and it's really important that deaf child finds their identity. And a lot of parents aren't even bothered to learn sign language. They're like, the doctor's like God. He knows everything. He can give me a miracle and fix my child. And of course, there's unpredicted consequences to that type of approach. And a lot of times, deaf kids go up to their parents later in life and say, why did you give me a cochlear implant? I'm not hearing. I'm deaf. And why weren't you involved in my life? Why didn't you learn sign language? And later on, those parents feel guilty. That does happen. I hear stories out there. And some kids are lucky and they grow up and their parents were involved in their life. It all depends on the individual. But really, pay attention to your kid. You don't need to rush them into anything. Look at me, I'm fine. I'm data, I'm totally deaf, I'm fine. I have a beautiful family. I have two screwed up brothers who know sign language too, and my mom too. So it's a beautiful family. And it requires love and patience, that's all. And you grow with each other. What was the first thing that you did where you were really going out on your own, maybe it was getting a job or going away to college that really um, was hard for your, for your dad and for, your, for both your parents, where they were maybe scared for what was gonna happen next. I can tell you my first job. So my first job was a bag boy at a supermarket. I was about 15 years old and my dad helped me get that job because the manager of the store knew him because my dad was so involved in the community. Said, hey, why don't you hire my son and give him an opportunity? And so this boss actually knew a little bit of finger spelling and sign language. So he hired me and I was really awkward, right? I'm bagging these groceries and some hearing people with strangers would ask me, where is this? So I had a pencil and a pad of paper. I'd say, I'm deaf. And I would, they'd write down their question, where can I find the milk? And so I'd show them where or write it down on a piece of paper. So I learned how to socialize at 15. I was like my first paycheck. I was like, wow, how exciting. So then through the years, when I went out into the real world, it was my first paid acting job was at the Sunshine 2 Theater Company when I was on tour with them. And I was like, wow, how exciting. So my dad was like, yeah, that's good. But he knew that it was only temporary because it wasn't a permanent job. And I was so excited, I was acting and then through the years, my dad was right, and I understood why he called me a risk taker. And so with my paycheck was always a different number, some smaller, some larger, and if it was smaller, I had to take side jobs. If it was a bit bigger, I didn't need that side job. I just had to really 
find a balance. I was like a freelancer, right? Working yeah. all these different jobs. And it was a huge risk. And so my dad kind of felt like, Troy, you got to be careful. And he was worried. He didn't want to deprive me of my life experiences. And he wanted to see me happy. That was what was important to him. But of course he was worried. Yeah. I really wish my dad was here to see me win that Oscar. I'm so sure he would have been proud. And everything that he sacrificed and everything that he did led me to win that award. And so it was an awesome journey. You're a dad. So tell me about (laughs) that experience. Now I understand a bit better. (laughs) After I had a kid, I understand even more about my dad and I have even more respect for him. You know, after everything he went through and now I'm a father, I'm like, ooh, I gotta, I see the two worlds. You gotta really adjust and make sure you have, understand and learn from your mistake or let your child fall and learn from their own mistakes. Because from my experiences, you know, they let me fall. They, they didn't baby me, right? You gotta be used to falling when you're young to prepare you for the real world. So, yep. Now I gotta be responsible for clothes. You know, I remember buying my daughter diapers. I was like, oh, these diapers are so cute. These little shoes. And dressing up my daughter, and then she's grown up, and it's been amazing. And life is beautiful. It's taught me to be a good dad. And try and do what my dad did. And do the same for my daughter. And I'm so excited. I plan on taking my wife and daughter to go to France on vacation soon for two weeks. I'm so excited about that. And I really want my daughter to have those memories. That's what's important to me. She only has a year and a half left before she graduates high school, and I'm not ready to let go. You know, that's why I need to really, really take as much time as I can and try and be the best dad I can. Oh, your daughter is roughly the same age as my son, so we're in the same moment right now. They're about to leave. So tell me about that feeling. Are you ready? No. <laughs> you know, that's why the movie Coda is like, it's like a warning sign to be prepared to let go and practice on being prepared. You know, I experienced that in the movie. Now I've got to experience that in real life. Your wife is deaf, but your daughter can hear, correct? So my daughter is a Coda in real life. Got it? Yes. <laughs> so, and now you understand some of what she's been through. What's been the hardest thing about being a dad and being a dad uh, who's deaf? Well, what's been hardest for me, so you have a coda, right? So codas socialize with hearing friends and they grow up with this bond. And then in the future, when their friends find out that their parents are deaf, sometimes it's awkward. Some kids are like, oh, that's really cool. And some are like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, and this... This kind of balance, right? And so she makes friends and they get along. And then the next step is how about that friend's parents? How do they behave when they meet us as deaf parents? And so sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes they're understanding and there's no problem. There's a curiosity and that's cool, but it's hard to predict. Yeah. So I really feel for my daughter as a coda what she goes through sometimes. And my daughter was interviewed. She was interviewed for something. 
and related to the movie Coda. And she said, it's so great that the deaf and hearing community are collaborating. What's even more cool is that the Coda community is partnering with the hearing community. So they can understand what a Coda is. And so now people have seen the movie Coda and they can understand a bit about their experience. So my daughter feels seen and she feels proud to be a Coda. And there's so many friends out, out there and so many people sending messages to me saying, hey, thanks, Troy, I'm a Coda. Thank you for making us feel seen. And thank you for making them understand. I'm tired of explaining myself to everyone. The movie speaks for itself. And so that was really amazing that so many Codas felt inspired. And I'll tell you a secret. My interpreter is also a Coda. Hello over there. <laughs> you picked a really hard job as an actor. <laughs> I was crazy. I understand quite clearly why my dad called me a risk taker. I slept in my car sometimes. I slept in the theater backstage. I slept, I couch surfed at friends' houses. I slept in the dressing room. We didn't always get paid so great, but I always found a way to survive and keep working. Sometimes I get a letter in the mail saying they were going to shut off my electricity, and I had to borrow money from friends. And yeah, acting's a tough job. You need more than one job to survive sometimes. And now looking back, I was like, wow, I feel like I paid my dues and it paid off. <laughs> you know, every all the crazy stuff that I did paid off. And so I feel like the dust on my shoulders like be evaporate. And I can relax and not have a chip on my shoulder and just feel, I feel fresh now. I, I know I'll be fine. In some ways, you were more prepared for that kind of job than a lot of people are, right? Because it's a, it is a job that, I think everything in entertainment is so entrepreneurial. You are kind of working for yourself the whole time, even, even when you're in a, on a TV show and part of like a network, you're still, you know, you're moving, you're like a nomad. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're, you know, your life experience really set you up to stay with it? Because a lot of people also leave the industry, they just can't put up with how punishing it is. The only place for me that I had access to as an actor was the theater stage. And it happened to be in LA. And then of course, TV and film industry was in LA. And that was a good reason for me to be there. If there wasn't a deaf theater company, I would have to wait for an audition for a TV role and wait. I didn't want to wait around. I wanted to be proactive and do something to keep my instrument sharp. And I wanted to direct. And I worked with so many different directors and I learned all of their different approaches. And so there's, I worked with deaf and hearing actors. I learned how to collaborate. And that really helped me to be ready. If an opportunity did come up, I already had that experience and I could apply it to any TV or film role. And the only difference was the process and the rehearsals and the timing. TV and film is not chronological. You jump around. It really depends on your location. I'm sure you're well familiar with that. But it's really important to be prepared. And most importantly, before I accept a role, I try and predict and see who the director is and what the name of the theater company is, who the audience is there. And if the money is okay, are they going to provide me with housing? I need to check all these options to see if it's worth the effort. 
And you can't predict what type of success that it leads to. I was in a production called Big River, which was the story of Huck Finn. Mm -hmm. And we went on tour. And we started at a small theater, a 99-seat theater. And it was we did a musical. And we're like, oh, let's try this. And it was successful. And it got rave reviews. And so more and more people were coming to see this production. Then we brought it to a larger theater, the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And there was... When we were we sold out there, then we went to Broadway and we were on Broadway for five months. Then after that, we That's toured amazing. the entire United States and the world, including Japan, just from that small 99 seat theater. So I thought, wow, that was incredible. And you couldn't predict that type of success. And the director, his name was Jeff Calhoun. And Jeff Calhoun was a, had directed many productions on Broadway in New York and I'd never worked with a director who had been successful on Broadway so it was almost like a gamble but it worked so Jeff was like I don't know what I'm going to do with deaf actors in a musical I've never experienced working with deaf people but he, we learned how to work together through the process and we grew together and it was a massive success and so I managed to work with Jeff Calhoun in five different musical productions what's your advice for the young creative person that wants to get into, whether it's acting or music or, or the creative arts, both if they're deaf or if they're just hearing, because in both cases, it's a, it's a difficult path, right? My advice for those with creative aspirations, find a good script like that could visually be great for the deaf as well. So maybe you've heard of Streetcar Named Desire. And so, of course, written by Tennessee Williams. And... So we did an adaptation. So you have Stanley and his wife, Stella, and we made them deaf. And the friend that he plays cards with is deaf too. And so they play, they go bowling and they, they go out together. The exception was Blanche. So Blanche is Stella's sister and Blanche was hearing and knew a new sign. And so Blanche moves to live with the deaf family. And there's a metaphor there because Blanche, she's embarrassed because she had to survive through prostitution. And so to escape, she moves with the deaf family and feels safe because she feels like they won't know about her past or got, spread any rumors. But of course, she's dead wrong. <laughs> deaf people spread rumors quite quickly. And so then that's where the, the screw up happens. And they don't get along. And so there's even more behind it rather than just the character. And oh, the brother doesn't like her. Oh, she's a dirty girl, this or that. But you've turned the tables. Oh, you're hearing. Why are you taking advantage of us? We're going to kick you out. You know, there's even more conflict and it's even more three dimensional. And True West, maybe you've heard of True West. Uh, written by Sam Shepard. So there's two brothers, and one brother lives in the desert, and he steals cars. He's kind of a tough guy, and the other brother is quite educated and behaved and is like a writer or something. So then they make one deaf and one hearing. The tough guy deaf and the, the, the brainiac hearing. And so they have quite a conflict. So what's interesting is it if a hearing production shows up, a hearing producer shows up, and they might say, hey, go. I don't want you to be here during this production meeting. And then the deaf character shows up, and the guy says, get out. And the producer's like, who's that? And he's like, 
and so he becomes an interpreter. Ah, uh, this is my brother. Oh, cool. This is your brother. Uh, and then he has to interpret the conversation, what the producer and I are talking about. And I go, hey, I have an idea for the story. And the brother has to interpret it. He's very uncomfortable. And after the producer leaves, both of them get in a big fight. So there's even more three-dimensional conflict and, and vision rather than just a standard. So I'd say look for a three-dimensional story and find the right script that you can really play around with or do a new take or an original work. And it's really fun to make sure that the signing and the voice actors are simultaneously. And that way the show can move quickly. I've noticed that many hearing and deaf people have really changed their life after working with deaf actors. There was one hearing actor who knew nothing, had never worked with any deaf person, but had, was a great voice actor, but was awkward. Five years later, he shows up. He had become an interpreter, a certified interpreter, who was amazing and one of our favorite interpreters. And he was inspired. He said, I learned a lot from you all. And because we just encouraged them to be creative. There aren't any rules about art. Who's making rules about art? Let, let us have create, creative freedom. And it's nice to bring deaf and hearing audiences together because many deaf children have hearing parents and some deaf parents have hearing children. Why don't we all have these experiences together, like in our film Coda? When I was young growing up, I'd sit in the audience watching film and I'd miss certain moments. And my brother or my parents or hearing friends would laugh at a part. And I'd say, what did they say? What did they say? And they'd interpret what they had said. And then I laugh, and there was a delay. There was always a delay until Coda. I'm so grateful to Apple, who was had the courage to put in the burned-in subtitles in the big yeah. screen on every single screening and of and showing of Coda. So deaf and hard of hearing, and older people who have hearing loss, and deaf people were all able to react at the same time and emote at the same time. Finally, I hadn't ever seen that ever since I was a child. And so then you have the captioning, not only for deaf people, but there's hard of hearing people who maybe don't know sign. They're able to benefit from the subtitles. Some people are learning a bit of sign, but, but you can read the English subtitles as well. Or you have senior citizens who lose their hearing. And then there's so many benefits. There's a, you can hit such a wide audience. People need to think outside of the box and bring in even more audience members. That's why there was an opportunity in the theater to develop these stories. We had such a rich experience, and so did the audience that watched these plays. So in your acceptance speech, you called your dad your hero. And I wanted to hear just what do you think it means to be a hero? I was so lucky that I had a dad who was a good example even through all, throughout all of these tragedies. And he overcame barriers, he kept going, and he remained positive. From my personal experience, as far as what went, my brother went through and my dad's car accident and him learning sign language before the accident, he never stopped, he kept going. He really inspired me a lot because he was such a, an advocate and he really wanted to 
prevent crime. He wrote articles. There was, he was so supportive of not only us, but of our community. I visited his job at the police station. He had a nice office with a big <laughs> desk. I felt like he was an important person. I felt really proud of my dad. He showed me around the office and he took me all around the building and I went down to see the prison bars and the jail cells. And I remember I was about 13 and my dad said, come on, Troy. And he brought me into the jail and he shut the door. <laughs> And he shut those bars and he goes, Troy, if you break the law, this is what it looks like on the inside. Think about that. And it scared me. And he, and he goes, you know, you're going to miss seeing the outside world if you're locked up in prison bars like this. So then I had to make sure I behaved. But my dad took me to outdoor activities. He was a wonderful leader in our community and he was so involved in the deaf community. He really cared about what was best for me. When he learned I was deaf, he loved me. He learned a lot from me. And so that's why my dad is my hero. And he was so strong. And then after his accident, he became disabled. I witnessed his transformation and his before and after. And that taught me really to have empathy for the disabled community. And my dad was my hero. And the disabled community, there's so much talent out there. They need advocacy. And many of them are afraid. Or many of people who are not disabled have a lot of fear. You know, they need to add a few letters onto fear and make themselves fearless. And that's what my father did. He was fearless. He was a good example. And I wanted to be like him. And, and look who I've become today. It's all because of him. Why are dads so important for kids? You, you know, your dad was so important for you. You are important for your daughter. What is it about dad from your perspective that is special and, and essential? When I was a kid, I was naive, right? I didn't know what my father had done. When I became a father myself, I had so much more respect looking back, and I understood how he brought money in to support his family. He was providing for four kids. And he always made sure we had fun. We went camping. We did outdoor activities, water skiing, fishing, and all of the above. And... I'll always remember and cherish those memories, even after my father left this earth. I'll always remember what he did. And I'm tr I would like to do the same for my daughter. When I became a father, I wanted to do everything to give my daughter these experiences. I'm so excited to take her to go to France, to go to the beach in California, to go and see different countries. And everything my dad did for me, I want to do for my daughter. I want her to remember me when my time is up, just like I remembered my father. If you have these bad memories, you don't want to remember, all that you'll remember is darkness and disappointment. And you want to have a loving father. And looking back, a father's responsible for protecting and cherishing his family and making sure their children are all right and they are behaved for the future and go down the right path and have the right training. And that's why it's so important. I think the role of the father really is to do what's best for his children, bring money home to support his family, feed his family, pay the electric bill. You can't escape paying the bills, you know? <laughs> we call this channel uh, Dad Saves America because I think that, like you said so well, like our role as dads isn't just about the impact we have with our family. It, it ripples out. Your dad was such a great example of that. 
he rippled out into the community and ultimately into the world. That's the role I think dad plays. How do you think about your role in the, in the American story, in the story of the country? Because I think that uh, we call America the land of opportunity and man, if you aren't the living example of that. <laughs> well, as far as being an American, you know, I've been through a lot of political battles with the pan and think about the pandemic and everything that has happened with the depression or economic crashes. And as a father, how can you navigate your family through tough times? And so the father saves the family, you know, and through all these tragedies, I'm still okay. I'm still in one piece. And looking back, it was my dad who's he, the dads are the ones who create us to be the ones who we are today. And so I think having a father there to cherish, love, and protect your family, really protect them through tough times in any situation. And then there's gonna be another difficult situation in the future. We don't know what that's going to be, but we have to be prepared to protect our family and make sure our kids are okay. And so that's just one example, is to make sure that you make it through, no matter what the situation is. In these negative times, I, I feel like there's an op, you know, we take things for granted and I'm just curious how you think about that, how you think about being an American. And I don't, I don't mean that in a like, particularly political way. I mean it in a deeper way than that. You know, I, I am proud to be an American dad. I feel like you're the one who has the most responsibility before anyone else, but that's how I feel. It's like you have to be strong and you have to be proud to be an example. All the choices that you give, you have to give, give these kids a good example and, and choices. And I think that's what's the beauty of being an American is being able to give your children more choices. What's next for you? You have the Oscar. Where do you go from here? Well, uh, recently I've read quite a few scripts and projects and I have to be extremely picky. You know, some <laughs> producers are now adapting hearing roles into a deaf role for me, and some scripts are already ready. I've been having a lot of meetings, and some projects are looking for funding, and I'd love to direct in the future, too. And that's very exciting for me. I've seen a lot of possibilities, and one possibility is uh, a project with Disney Plus this fall, which is a new project that's quite exciting, and you'll see me soon. They're going to make the announcement. Well, I'm very excited to see what you do next, Troy. Thank you. Thank you. And here's to an incredible life and to an incredible dad. Thank you for being on Dad Saves America. Thank you. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.